Hey everyone, Beyond the Baseline is brought to you by FanDuel, the leader in one-week fantasy sports. More winners, more payouts than any other site. Enter the promo code BEYOND at FanDuel.com. Enter a risk-free tournament. Get up to 10 bucks back. We're also sponsored by the SeatGeek app, the smartest way to buy and sell tickets for your favorite events or concerts. Download the SeatGeek app, enter the code BEYOND, get 20 bucks off your first purchase. Everyone, tennis does not have much of an offseason. We do not either, but this is one week we're taking off. And what does everyone do when they take off a week, but they still want to have content? They do some sort of greatest hits, and that's what we're going to do. So this is a compilation of podcasts from 2015. You hear from all sorts of guests. Think of this as a best of. Here are some of the people you're going to be hear from. Kelsey Anderson, wife of Kevin Anderson, The day he played Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon, biggest match of his career to that point. She spoke with us. What is it like when your husband is on the court? What's it like to be an ATP wife? We talked to Victoria Azarenka as she tries to get back to where she once belongs and gets back to the top five. Lindsay Davenport was her usual funny and insightful self. She talks about all sorts of things, including Serena Williams' 2015 season and the unfortunate end to it. James Blake spends some time with us, talks to us about tennis, but also the NYPD incident that was very disturbing and unexpected. Mary Carrillo talks to us about how she got into this wacky media game, plenty of others as well. So here are greatest hits from the 2015 Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. So on a day like this, what's your job? Is it just sort of get out of the way and be supportive, or are you part of the, like, pep talk and preparation um I try to I try to help give Kevin a little bit pep talk but right before he left today I just said go out there play your game if you play smart you're gonna have a chance so I try to just keep it simple I I didn't play tennis so I don't have too much technical or tactical knowledge to apply to his strategy but the mental stuff as a golfer myself I uh, think I can add and bring a little bit to the table from the mental side of things and you know the most trite question in these situations sometimes is what's it like but I'm genuinely curious both short term and sort of big picture what's it like so what's it like sitting there you're at Wimbledon it's Monday round of 16 quarterfinal berth up for grabs playing against Djokovic what's it like to be sitting there in the front row when your husband's on the court it's definitely exciting. Obviously, the whole team recognizes the gravity of the moment and how much is at stake. Kevin's never made a quarterfinal of a slam. We all believe he's capable of doing that or even better. It's one of his top goals. And, um, you know, he just keeps knocking at the door, and we don't really know when he's going to get that breakthrough result, but we all believe it's going to happen. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's nerve-wracking for all of us. Um, we all want him to go out there and play as the player we know he's capable of playing. And um, just hopefully he has a chance today and he, he gives himself some opportunities. I think if he plays smart, he, he definitely will. So big picture. You're college educated, you're well-spoken, and you're the spouse of a tennis player, which means a lot of travel and a lot of disruptions. Um, again, the trike, what's, what's it like? You know, I think a lot of people look at the, the wags. They like you to call said the word. I see. Did you notice I caught myself? I didn't want to use that word. Well, yeah, they, lo- they look at us wag, as a, a group of people who are, you know, to be seen and not heard. And I think people discount that 
we, we do contribute, or at least we like to think we contribute a lot to making these guys into great competitors behind the scenes. And um, it's actually pretty remarkable when you start talking to some of these tennis players and meeting their wives. So many male tennis players are drawn to really talented, accomplished, successful women in their own right. And it's unbelievable the number of guys. Uh, Robin Hassa, his girlfriend Kim, is a doctor. Mar Matt Ebden, his girlfriend is, a, or his wife, sorry, <laughs> his wife is an attorney. Um, whole bunch of guys. Uh, Bob Bryan's wife is an attorney. Just so many of them are drawn to accomplished, successful people. And um, it's actually, it's commendable that these guys, you know, they're not just looking for arm candy or somebody to sit in their box and say, oh, good job, well done. They want somebody who's, you know, accomplished and can contribute meaningful stuff to their team. It's pretty cool. It's funny, I was going to get to that in a second. Um, is there a sisterhood among you guys? I mean, are you friendly with... Yeah. Ex-spouse or girlfriend, or is it everybody kind of in their team mode? It's definitely not like being in a sorority. I can promise you that. And I know some of the other sports, it, it is got more of that group and uh, camaraderie. I know the, the golf wives, they're always hanging out and doing stuff together. Tennis isn't like that as much. There's certainly people who I've become very good friends with through this, but there's also a lot of superficial friendships. People tend to keep each other, and I think many players would tell you this as well, in this community, people keep each other at arm's length because it is one-on-one -on -one competition. It's head-to-head. -head. Not that many people get super buddy-buddy with their competition. The guys who come from federations with a lot of players, like I know the Australian guys, they tend to hang out together. Um, you know, the American guys are friends. Kevin doesn't have any other South Africans, so especially we're kind of out there alone a lot of times. Um, but, you know, everybody's nice. It's a great group of people. But I think the number of people who you're going to get super close with is somewhat limited, just given the nature of the competition. So if you look at the top players, their spouses now, we don't have to use the word wag, uh, yeah. their spouses are accomplished, outspoken. I mean, Mirka, obviously, we, we all know about her yeah. influence. I mean, I don't know if you've met Novak's wife, but she's, you know, she's on Twitter sending around economist articles. Um, yeah. Kim Sears has a whole life outside of tennis. Is there some trickle-down effect there? I mean, do, do you think that is sort of impacting the culture the same way Roger, you know, Rafa Novak and Andy are on the court? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that the the women behind the scenes play a bigger role than, than people probably realize. And I think, uh, although you, I hate to say you have no identity other than your spouse, but at this point in my life, I'm giving everything to Kevin to help him achieve what he can achieve. I don't, I don't want to have a job right now because I wouldn't be able to give him as much time or energy as, as if I had other commitments. So I think all of the top guys, more or less, their, their spouses are doing the same things behind the scenes, helping out everywhere they can and uh, just being there for the guys. Best part of the job? Best part of the Wait, job. Wait, can I stop you and say, <laughs> after, was it before or after we were going to do this? You were, you were going to get your nails done in the... Uh, yeah. There's some, there's some parts that go No, with, there's but. some glamorous parts, but there's a ton of unglamorous parts. Get to the good stuff first. People Let's... have no idea. But um, good stuff, I would say, it's obviously fabulous traveling the world. I've gone so many places that I never would have gone if it wasn't for this tennis. Um, but my personal favorite... I got to say just being with Kevin. We we were long distance for a really long time in our relationship and even after we were married for a whole year, I continued to work at Ernst and Young and Kevin was traveling. I had 2 weeks of vacation. 
So I didn't see much of him at all other than when he came back to Chicago for a weekend here, a weekend there. So just being together, I think, is really fun and actually living a married life, even though it's not maybe what everybody's conception would be, yeah, of, of married life. But for us, it works, and it's great, and we're, we're having a lot of fun with it. It's a short-lived moment, you know, to, to take advantage of this time to be together. Challenges? Um, I mean, the obvious ones that everybody would agree with are travel, you know, unless you're one of these people who has the luxury of traveling privately, <laughs> there's always delays and misconnections, security lost, lines with the rest of us. Yeah, lost luggage, you know, the the whole range of it. We've been really unlucky this year for some reason, so that that jumps to mind. Um, other things, it, it, it gets difficult living out of a suitcase, eating at restaurants every night. I mean, most people, they get to go out to a restaurant and enjoy a really nice evening together, and Kevin and I, you know, kind of view it as a little bit of a chore. When we're at home, our favorite thing is to eat at home and just have meals together in our house. So a, a chore because he gets noticed, a chore because the yeah, nutrition is weird. Yeah, not because he gets weird. noticed, just like the time it takes. I mean, you think about how much time that takes out of your day every day, getting to a restaurant, sitting there for an hour and a half, sometimes two hours while the meal comes, and then getting home. It's like a three-hour production every day where that's time normal people, they, you know, eat for 30, 40 minutes, and then they just relax and hang out. So That's a good point. I never that, that. Yeah, yeah I, I hate to be all cynical about it, but for us, we, we enjoy the home-cooked meals and staying in and just relaxing when we get the opportunity to do it. Is there a better tennis player than you in the world right now? Um, I think um, Serena is... You do think is, that? Well, I don't care about the rankings. I, I mean, I in your mind, is there a better player in the world than you right now? I, I, don't, I don't look at it that way. I think she's by the... You know, you can say by the books if I'm sitting here and saying, no, she's, she's not a better player than me. You look at the statistics and results, and it's really obvious. Um, but the way I feel, I cannot think of somebody else better than me when I go on the court. The reason I ask is sometimes you hear, oh, she does, she lacks self-belief and her self-confidence. No, no one ever says, oh, Ada Azarenka, you know, the strokes are there, but she lacks self-belief. I mean, I think that's one thing people associate with you is this level of confidence that mm-hmm. honestly not every other player has. Well, I wouldn't be where and achieve whatever I have achieved uh, without that because if you look from where I came from, I really had one shot of, of making it. And... Um, and uh, the rest is kind of history, but you have to, you have to have that. Otherwise, um, you lost the match before you even stepped on the court. So here's my question: How how different are you on the court during a match than you? Are? I mean, is this is this a detachment? Is this an extension of you? How different are you during a match than you are right now, sitting across from me? Mm, well, I think very different in real life. I am very competitive in no matter what I do. If I'm if I want to achieve something, but um, in real life, I just I'm more way more mellow. I like to have fun. I'm very funny. There is no not enough space on the court to be funny and to um, just be loose. There's when I'm out there, it's all about the concentration, and I do understand um, the point. You know, like I experience it every day how intense it is, and sometimes. Um, you are saying stuff that you maybe shouldn't say, but you sometimes you're in that bubble that you don't you don't realize what's happening. And um, but um, the ultimate I think goal is to make sure that 
it helps your tennis and um, you try to be the best person possible out there because it's it's a sport you have um, you are competitive but you have to respect um, your opponents and people around who especially people around who are helping you out on the court helping you out with the ball kids and the umpires you know sometimes we're being a little bit hard on them but you don't mean it but I think it's it's a part of your uh, maturity to be able to be responsible for that and try to take action and, and at least try to change and be um, um, a little bit more respectful. So that's what I do for myself. I don't like to speak how somebody else has to behave or what they should do. I just speak from my own experience and from what I've learned and what I want to change and be better. You guys, like it or not, are brands, and mm-hmm. there's this commercial element to being a tennis player. I mean, how, how much does that impact you? How much do you want to be known? How much do you care about image? How much of this is sort of part of your whole occupational requirements these days? Well, I think when you start to play um, tennis as a kid, you don't think that all that is coming with a job, but it, it really is. It's part of your job to um, to make your brand. But to me, I look at it as also to have a platform to uh, promote our sport. I'm a huge fan of tennis. I, I um, You know, tennis gave me my life that I'm living right now. So I believe that I have a little bit of... Um, not obligation, but uh, responsibility to uh, to promote that, uh, to also, um, you know, uh, interact with fans who are looking for um, some sometimes information and meet meet and greets. It's I think it's just part of part of the job and building the brand is um, I want to have to build my brand that impacts and inspires um, people to play tennis, to um, just motivate themselves in life and um, to be the best self, uh, uh, versions of themselves, whatever they do. So um, I think it is um, a side job from what you do on the court, but I um, I like to have fun with it. And um, it's also definitely has been a, probably the biggest learning experience to have all these opportunities and uh, media and um, how to build a brand is it was the biggest uh, experience learning experience for me like I say there might be something you know it's it's a lot different from hitting backhands and forehands and yeah. there's a social media element and yeah. there's you know coming in and meeting strangers and introducing yourself and yeah. you, you present well but I imagine that's not something you imagined was part of the job no, it's it's all about communication and personal uh, contact, and that's uh, something you learn a little bit. Um, I love to have uh, more of um, personal contact with people. That's why I do all my social media with the fans. I think um, they appreciate it, and they are like real diehard fans. You know, it's uh, it gives you get, the, you're you're very active on that. You're yeah, I love that. I um, I always thought that is you know we we've been given this opportunity to give um like a first uh first intake on what's really happening with you so it's you know breaking news <laughs> comes from twitter from your instagram so um i love to share that part of my life and i still believe people um don't know vika so much off the court yeah want them to i would love to i think that they might be a little surprised The NFL season is drawing to a close. The tennis season is starting back up. NBA is in midseason form. 
Being a sports fan is so much better now than it used to be, and FanDuel raises the competition to a weekly spectacle. Thousands of leagues with entry fees as low as a buck. There's a league for everyone. FanDuel isn't just for large tournaments. You can set up a private league, play against your friends anytime, anywhere. Now on FanDuel, use my code BEYOND. Play a risk-free tournament in fantasy football, basketball, or hockey for up to 10 bucks. If you win, keep the money. If you lose, FanDuel will refund your account guaranteed. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Again, NBA now. Look at hockey. Building a team is easy. It's fun. Pick out the players. Stay under the cap. You can play fantasy sports for real cash any night of the week. To get started, go to FanDuel, click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, use the code BEYOND, sign up now. Here's a great offer. Again, 10 bucks. You get to roll it. If you win, keep it. If you lose, put it back in play. It goes back into your account. That sounds like a sweet deal to me. FanDuel.com, click on the microphone, enter the code BEYOND. FanDuel.com, it pays to be a fan. F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Try it out today. I don't know. I figure we ought to just start with Serena. And I guess what I'll start by saying and asking is what surprises you more that that defeat or what's happened since, which is she obviously hasn't played a match. Um, I I hear from friends at NBC. She was supposed to host Saturday Night Live and that did not materialize. She's kept a low profile, obviously not playing for the rest of the year, at least WTA events, not playing Singapore, which is a big blow to the tour. What surprises you more, her losing that semifinal match or the fact that we have not seen much of her since? Definitely losing the match. Um, I think for her to take the fall off and to decompress to get away from the sport is, unfortunately, it's bad for the sport. But that's exactly what she has to do to kind of get her mind back to still be able to focus nine to ten months out of the year at 34 years of age after accomplishing everything she has done. I think that a break was definitely the right way to go. Now, it's interesting. She's not going to play a match as it stands now from losing in the semifinals of the U.S. Open to the first round of the Australian Open. She agreed to play Hotman Cup, but that's not, um, you know, regular right. tour match. So it's a long break, but uh, I think she'll be okay. The loss still to Vinci. I thought she had gotten over those, those tournament nerves the first week after the Maddox Sands match. Uh, I just think you just can't deny that enormous amount of pressure she felt, and you saw it all come to a head against Vinci. That looked to me like she was, and I, and I, don't use this term loosely. I mean, she was having a nervous breakdown on the court. Yeah. And, 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 pa- I, and Patrick, I, I got to say, to Patrick's credit, her coach, Patrick Mortoglu, yep. basically said, you know, she was tight. She was nervous. She didn't move nearly as well as she's accustomed to. It was, to me, there was something poignant. There was something sort of sad that e- even the greatest female player of this generation, if not ever, is still susceptible to nerves. There was something sad about the fact that it would have been great for Serena. It would have been great for tennis if she could have achieved this. Um, But to me, that was one of the stranger sporting events I've been to, where she was literally playing at, I mean, you know, she used to say this earlier in her career, and people would sort of roll their eyes. She literally was playing at something like 60% her capacity, I thought. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, You know, it was so funny. Before the tournament started, I, I saw Gigi Fernandez, and we were talking about it, and she said, I don't think she's going to do it. And I kind of just giggled and said, well, why? She's like, well, 
I know it's different, but I played for the doubles Grand Slam. And she goes, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. All I could think about was trying to accomplish it. And then Gigi told me she talked, had t- just spoken to the Bryan brothers as well, and they said the same thing. They'd never felt that much pressure, and they thought it would be really tough for her to do as well. Now, there's not many people you can find that were playing for <laughs> the calendar year slam and what kind of pressure they felt at the U.S. Open. I thought it was interesting to hear from some of the best doubles players of all time how much they felt And you know that Serena probably had all these commercials already in the can that were going to run if she was able to accomplish it. As you said, Saturday Night Live, all this stuff was dependent on on her winning that tournament. And then to know she had to beat Vinci and Panetta, no disrespect to them, but I think she would have taken that had someone told her that two weeks earlier. Okay, once you get to the semis, it's Vinci and Panetta to, to win it. Um, I just think that she cracked. Everyone saw it on a public forum and you just can't deny that how important that tournament and that moment was to her. To me, there's something really sad about the timing of all this, that if she, if she had lost in Australia in the semifinals, people would have been surprised. Then she would have won the next three majors. So she still finishes the year with three majors, but instead of losing the last one, she loses at the first one. People, yeah. She's the toast of tennis, and this is a great story. I think the fact that she was you know, literally 26, 28ths of the way, 13 14th if we reduce our fractions. I mean, she literally had she had three sets to go for this amazing accomplishment. And as you say, I mean, this would have redefined her career. There had to have been tens of millions of dollars. I mean, imagine the bonuses for winning the Grand Slam. Yeah. I think the, the, the fact, I mean, it, it's sort of, it's strange to me that it sort of ends up a, a little bit on a downer. This is the last match she'll play in 2015. It's a defeat. It's an upset. And yet you stand back and you say, we should be celebrating this as one of the all-time great seasons in tennis. Yeah, you know, it it really, you can't deny that it's not. I mean, she just just wanted it so badly. And she's such an emotional player out on court and, and how you can just see when you look at her and her how she conducts herself. I mean, Steffi never really changed how she just put her head down, walked from side to side, you know, very little fist pumps, you know, it was just all business. Serena's always given us such an insight to how she's feeling. And she's normally just such a great athlete and so good. She can just power through it even when she's feeling vulnerable. But I mean, that day she just, it, it just looked like she wanted to be anywhere else once it got to about the latter stages of the second set, anywhere else than Arthur Ashe Stadium Court. I'll grope at an obvious storyline. That's what we do in media. There, <laughs> there is a certain irony I would maintain to uh, the marathon is this great New York Day, great celebration of New York. I think we could spin this as a, a certain irony of you uh, taking part of this after the events during the uh, during the U.S. Open. How, how does sort of everything that's transpired since? Labor Day weekend sort of figure into all this? Well, um, for me, it's, um, you know, it's not really an issue about the marathon at all. It, that was an issue about one officer. And I, I think it's it's such a minority in the police force that I know the police are going to be out there uh, keeping us safe, keeping the fans safe and doing their very best uh, on a day when most of them should be off watching football or spending it with their families on a, on a Sunday. And, and I appreciate everything they do. I just think um, the, the good cops 
need to be aware that some of the bad cops could could uh could sully the 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 badge which to me is something you know any anyone that's that's in uniform that's putting their life on the line for our safety deserves to be called a hero and i think there are a few people that aren't taking that as seriously and, and aren't doing the job that that they signed up to do and and i think this officer falls into that category unfortunately so i don't hold any grudges i don't hold anything uh anyone else responsible but the person involved and um you know the rest of the force i'm i'm really uh I'm hoping I'm not too tired to shake plenty of their hands and, and thank them for what they do on, on this Sunday and, and every day. I was sort of curious about how – I mean, this came out of the blue, this incident, clearly. Yeah. And in, yeah. in, every, in every possible way, you, yeah. you've spoken about it quite a bit in the last yeah. few weeks. Um, I mean, I think – candidly, I think you find a really nice balance between addressing it mm-hmm. and making statements that need to be made. And at the same time, you're not – no one's accusing you of grandstanding. Yeah. How much sort of – energy is this taken out of you uh it's taken a lot of um a lot of time and um that's okay i'm i'm fine with that because um when it happened that uh, you know i was i was so much in shock that i didn't think about what the next step was until i until i realized that i do have a voice and i heard from a lot of people that said similar things happen to them or similar things happen to their friends and and then i realized how often this happens that most people don't have that voice so I really thought I, I need to do something about this. I, I need to be the voice that most people don't have. And now that I'm realizing it's taking a lot of time to do that, I'm, I'm still happy to do that because um, I thought about it immediately after when I spoke to my wife and she asked, what if this had happened to me? And I, I just can't fathom it happening to someone I care about, someone that I love and and just wouldn't ever want to see that video of someone else. It's one thing to see it of me. And it's I actually think it's less traumatizing to watch that happened to myself than it is to if I were to watch it to one of my family members or one of my best friends or someone that I, I truly loved and cared about. So um, it, it's it's a a welcoming a welcome role that I play in being uh, in taking up some of my time. Last last question about this, and then we'll move on. But mm. we've you know I, we've known each other for a long time. Mm. I think the first time we met, you were still at Harvard, and I I always thought that you handled race really gracefully, and you made a point you didn't run from any issues, but you also made a point of stressing that you were biracial Mm -hmm. and that not everything had to be seen through a prism of race. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it did, but your mother was British. And that, Mm -hmm. I mean, you you really sort of had this balance between accepting an identity and also not shirking, I I would say, responsibilities. Mm -hmm. It it seemed to me this was a theme, too, in, in, uh, in this most recent event, that there was a racial component, but you really made it about police and policing and aggression and... Yeah. Did did not play a trope but didn't run from it either. Yeah, I feel that um you know a lot of people want to place that um that label on it that it's a racial incident and I um you know I feel like that's an important uh movement right now. The Black Lives Matter movement is very important. There's a ton of uh incidences where uh, there is racial profiling. There is, there there are um racial factors involved in so many things. I'm not naive to think we live in a post-racial society, but this incident was so obviously about excessive force. It was an abuse of power um that I don't think it's um it's fair to to bring all of that together and make this about abuse of uh, abuse of power or excessive force and the racial component because I think the more obvious um factor here is the the excessive force and I want that to be shown that this this officer was abusing um, what he felt he had the authority to do. And uh, I, don't, I don't want to, to make this uh, totally about race because then I think 
um, you're bringing into you bring such a bigger issue. That should be a whole other topic. That should be brought up uh, the next time there's a movement uh, or a rally around Black Lives Matter. There are better incidences. There are better examples of of racial incidents that they can use as opposed to this one. This one, I think, should be focused more on the excessive force. The final week of the NFL season is coming up. Then it's on to the postseason. The NBA is in midseason form. We all wish our season were going as well as Steph Curry and the Warriors. Regardless, SeatGeek app is the best way to get your ticket to the stadium, the arena, or the rink. Use my code BEYOND. Get $20 back via check or PayPal. SeatGeek makes going to events so easy. It pulls in the buying and selling options from other sites, gives it to you all in one place to save time. Week in, week out, I make the analogy, it is kayak for event tickets. Also, if you have tickets you can't use, SeatGeek will help you quickly sell them to another fan. None of those sneaky fees at the end. Very easy. And now you get 20 bucks back if you enter my code. So download the free SeatGeek app today. It's an easy download. Enter the code BEYOND. SeatGeek will send you 20 bucks once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. All sorts of games this weekend, all sorts of NFL and NHL games this week. For all we know, it works for the Australian Open. Jamie Lasanti will have to check that out. For tickets, use the SeatGeek app. Don't forget to enter our code BEYOND. Get 20 bucks back. As the year comes to a close, we want to acknowledge the most important part of the SI Podcast Network. And quite simply, that is you. You spend time with us, you download us, you listen, you send responses, you send criticism, you send suggestions for new guests. All of that is appreciated. So thank you so much. We're busy creating even richer listening experiences here, trying to figure out what we're doing in this new medium, how to make it better. We always love to hear from you. Get in touch with this show, either through me at Twitter, at John underscore Wertheim, or SI underscore Tennis. Check our entire roster so far. We'll have more to come next year, guaranteed. From our family here to yours, this includes my ace producer, Jamie Lasanti. We say Happy New Year. See you in 2016, everyone. Mary Carrillo used to be a player? Yeah. So how did did you... uh, I didn't play long and I didn't play well. But how did you get into this media racket? It was quite a scam. um, Well, I was writing, even even when I was uh, playing, I I would write some stories for... Um, you know, the WTA had a, like a newsletter that came out, and then I started doing a couple of newspaper stories and uh, programs and stuff like that. I wrote a book with Martina Navratilova, uh, a children's tennis book. So I was always writing. I come from a, a fairly right. literary-minded family. My brother's a novelist, among other things. And, and so um, the year I quit, I was at the – this is a ridiculous story – but I was at Madison Square Garden. For the year, WTA year-end championships, and I was the last person around. They'd had special guests on, Virginia Wade, Billie Jean King, during the night in between matches. There was one match left. Were you, uh, as an on-air guest? I was, and I was in the crowd. I'd already, you know, blown the suds off a couple of beers, and I, mean, I was, and, I, and I wanted to watch this last match of the night. Most of the crowd was, you know, half the crowd was gone, I'd say, but Tracy Ross was playing Yvonne Gulagong, and I, I love that matchup, and so... You know, some desperate woman from the Virginia Slim said, well, Mary Carrillo's around. You know, she could probably. So I got interviewed in, before that match, and I explained why it was going to be great. And the two guys who were calling the matches, you know, one of them said, uh, why don't we keep her on? So I didn't even have – I had a microphone like the one in front of me right now, but no headset. And I just sort of – talk about just vamping. Riff. And I just riffed. And luckily for me – and it was a great match. Tracy Austin won 7-6, seven, 7-6. Six, seven, six. 
And I was just going. Did you have like, fun? I had an unbelievable time. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great time, but I didn't think anything of it, you know. And a couple of months later, a producer for USA Network happened to have heard me that night. And I just, it was 1980, Wimbledon. I had just lost in the first round to Pam Teagarden in 14 minutes. I was unemployed. I was thinking of going back to school. I was thinking of going back to teaching because I'd already done a lot of coaching by then. And um, this guy said, I heard you. You know, would you, we're, doing, we're starting to show some women's tennis matches. Uh, would, you, would you want to try your hand? I said, absolutely, which is always my response to anybody who ever asked me, do you feel like – of course. Do you want to come into a hub and do a podcast? Do you want to cover skiing? Do you want to cover figure? Do you want to – have you ever thought of you – know, I, do you speak Mandarin? Of course. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> so from there, I got to do men's tennis, and then I got to do other stuff. And so that was 35 years ago. There you go. I was lucky. Mentors? I don't know. Who, who kind of uh, – I mean, you know, I, you're – again, I'm, I'll embarrass you and say you have an outsized influence on teaching me the tricks. and sort of. <laughs> I mean, who, who took you by the hand and said, don't wear – you know – don't wear white after Labor Day. Um, oh, I mean, but in there, terms there's a of, lot of to this game, there's there's a lot of yes. sort of potholes you want to avoid stepping in. Well, in tennis, my biggest mentor was Billie Jean King. I was very lucky that we were both living in New York at the time, and she used to when I was still playing. You know, I'd practice with her, and I sat at her knee and watched her live her life on and off the court. And so she was, I think, my my but most I mean, important media wise. Media wise, I mean, I had a. There was a crazy guy named Mark Stolberger. He was, he was the guy who had heard me that night at the garden, you know, not knowing that I'd had a couple of brewskis and I was just kind of riffing or whatever. And he taught me more probably than in the first year. I didn't, I didn't know how to hold a microphone. I didn't know how to, you know. He'd be talking in my ear. I'd be answering him back on air. You know? <laughs> he taught me an incredible amount about television and about doing your homework and how to ask a question and how how not to answer it in the same question that you're asking. And he did a lot for me. And then I've worked for so many different people and so many different sports. So, But I, I have to give him, I have to give Mark Solberger a lot of credit. And a lot of people don't know who he is. He's not even in the game anymore. But, and then I had, I mean, there were people I've always loved listening to. I have always thought that Vin Scully was the very best at any sport. And I maintain that opinion still to this day. I mean, I, it's, I, I'm a great respecter of good storytellers. It's why I liked you before I even ever met you. Oh, you tell no. good stories. And, yeah. that's, and that's something that you can work on and get better at. So what you do, you do matches, mm-hmm. you host, you do features, you do longer form mm-hmm. preference. And, and also, like, how, <clears throat> how malleable do you think the skill set is? I mean, how, how different is the drill of covering a live tennis match than doing a real sports piece? It's different. It's different. I mean, real sports is... We try to make it serious journalism. You know, it's it's a good show. It's a, you know, and I can do a piece. I had a piece on the other last month that was close to 20 minutes long. I mean, with no commercials. That's a nice, long, patient, textured piece. So when you get, when you have uh, an address like that where you can really lay down and, and, and do some nice work, that's, I love that kind of work. I like doing features. I've done, this will be my fifth straight Olympics where I'm doing not just player profiles, but athlete profiles, but historical features. It, I, was on a, I was on a former slave plantation last week in Salvador. Um, 
not knowing until I got there that after Nigeria, there are more blacks in Brazil than any other country in the world because they had more slaves and for longer than any other country in the world. So, I mean, I like that kind of stuff too. I love working on documentaries. Long-form storytelling is my favorite. There's no money in it for me yet. (laughs) I've done – I think this is my seventh or eighth, but I love that process. I mean, more than anything, I guess I I like swinging from the trees. I like doing – other things. Tennis is the only sport I'm at all fluent in, but I love, I love sports and I love the athletic heart and I will follow it anywhere. And you like the process of this too. I mean, you'll, you'll go down and shoot that feature for the Rio coverage on NBC, but I, I assume you're going to see it several times in the production mm-hmm. and you're yeah. going to look over someone's shoulder as they put it together. You don't just oh, yeah. Yeah, go, go there, appear on camera, and first time you see it. No, I mean, we, t- we get to talk about it a lot. And we, you know, I mean, that, that's the best part about this whole process, as, as I know you're finding out, is how collaborative it is and how you can spitball ideas and some of them stick to the wall and some of them don't. But, you know, there's, you, you're, it's, a, it's nice to be part of something where your voice is really heard. And you can, you know, make a lot of changes and adjustments. And you think you're going in with one story and a whole different story pops out instead. And that's always kind of great, too. And I've had stories that have fallen away. I thought, oh, this, this is going to be good. And then you go there and you realize it's not really. Or you realize, I, I, you know, then you come to know that something is better in print than it is on television. So you, you, right, there's right. so many different things to, to find out about what makes a good story. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks to Jamie Lasanti, our ace producer. Those were some greatest hits from 2015. We'll hope to have more next year as we do another round of podcasts here. Again, thanks, everyone, for listening. It's been a lot of fun. Have a good year. Have a good 2016. We've got a major just a few weeks away. We'll be preparing accordingly. Lindsay Davenport has threatened to grace us with her presence once again. And now that I say that and memorialize it. She has to come on and do a preview for the Australian Open with us. Again, that does it. That's our greatest hit show. Our last show of 2015. We'll be back in the new year. Have a good one, everyone. I'm John Wertheim. Jamie Lasanti sitting across the table from me. She wishes you well. In addition, it's been a lot of fun. We'll do it again next year. 